Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello, and this is episode 79. In this week's episode, we conclude the interview with John Zerilli, Leverhulme Fellow at the University of Oxford, a research associate in the Oxford Institute for Ethics in AI, and an associate fellow in the Center for the Future of Intelligence at the University of Cambridge. We've been talking about his recently published book, A Citizen's Guide to Artificial Intelligence, which tells you what you, as a concerned, capable, and involved person, should know about the major issues in AI today. Last week, we talked about what that meant and discussed privacy in particular. This week, we'll be talking about bias and education and how cognitive science and philosophy inform our evaluation of AI. By the way, when John refers to fennel near the beginning, some context is in order. He's referring back to the first half of the interview when we were talking about where he says in the book, what if an AI that's deciding whether or not to grant a loan determines from the metadata that it's been trained on that people who don't like fennel are bad credit risks. It's a great example of the sort of connection that a model might come up with. It's not illegal, but it just smells bad. Although not as bad as fennel. I don't like fennel, okay, so I was paying attention. Anyway, some meaty stuff ahead, so let's get back into it. Tell us more about your current project then. Yeah, so I am looking at a body of law known as administrative law. Administrative law, some of your viewers may have heard of it. It's the branch of the law that looks at the legitimacy of actions by the government, so executive government actions. You can challenge, for example, you can challenge the decision that a minister of the Crown or the Secretary of State took in some matter, and you can challenge it on a number of bases. One of the bases of challenging such a decision might just be that the minister or the Secretary of State concerned took irrelevant matters into account. So perhaps in the UK context, the Home Office, so the Secretary of State, she might have decided to decline an application for a visa on the basis of something like, I don't know, hair colour, or just to use a toy example. Now, that decision can be challenged by reference to principles of administrative law, which basically hold members of the executive to account a high standard of reasonable and fair decision-making. In the US, it's called due process. In the UK, it tends to be called natural justice or procedural fairness. So my project is concerned with examining these principles of administrative law and looking at whether they need to adapt to accommodate machine learning in the way I've just said. Perhaps the default position in the law isn't quite the right one to be bringing to machine learning, but I think that there are going to be cases on the other side where the machine learning systems themselves need to adapt to the contours of administrative law. So it's not just a case of one yielding or bending to the other. There needs to be some sort of mutual accommodation fit both ways. And that's what I'm trying to look at and examine and get a better grip on in my current project. Because my background is both law, cognitive science and philosophy, 
I'm using the occasion to examine the philosophical, I suppose, the real marrow of administrative law. What underlies the principles of administrative law? If those principles are ones that we don't want to compromise, say something like equal dignity. So due process, we normally think of that as being the right to a fair hearing based on evidence. You can't just put someone in prison for no reason. You have to have a trial. You have to have witnesses. You have to have evidence. If what all that is based on is something very primitive, like our regard for one another as equal beings, equal before the law, then that suggests any principle of administrative law that's grounded in that primitive principle cannot yield to machine learning. But other principles of administrative law may not be grounded in the same considerations. Or instead, as with the example of the machine that associates a liking of fennel with creditworthiness, perhaps the principle that says irrational decision-making is unacceptable, isn't grounded in anything other than a sense that somebody's affairs must be pronounced upon in a way that is scientifically explicable. Doesn't it also mean it's got to be comprehensible to us? Even if the AI is right, if we can't understand it, we can't use it. Is that what you're saying? Well, that's just the question. I mean, is that what the underlying principles of administrative law are saying? That a decision needs to be comprehensible to us? Well, I think that is what the principles are based on, but it's undeniably conditional upon another human being making the decision. When it's no longer a human being making the decision, if I could put it that way, then perhaps the default position is misplaced. So in so much as a human being decides and pronounces on our affairs, then they better give reasons and those reasons should hold up to common sense. But it might not be a case of common sense being offended or infringed when a machine decides something and uses what merely appear to be irrational criteria. In the case of a machine, there might be something else going on. And it's this struggle between mm. the requirements of administrative law and what machine learning presents that is the unresolved issue. It's the main question that needs to be addressed. Right. And then complicating this is that the machine is trained on some data which may have bias in it, implicit, hidden, or directly copied from the people that gathered the data. And there may have been someone biased against fennel in that, or somehow that data, that training data, represents an inaccurate picture. And so the algorithms generate an inaccurate model. Yeah, that is largely how bias trickles down into affecting real lives is because the bias is already out there. Mm. And the data that's collected simply instantiates in itself the bias, patterns of discriminatory policing, for example, and then they feed the algorithms and the algorithms are there to detect patterns. So the patterns they detect are largely going to be discriminatory and prejudicial in certain ways. So that's what you get fed back. You mentioned background in neuroscience. Your previous book was The Adaptable Mind and what neuroplasticity and neural reuse tell us about language and cognition. Mm -hmm. And I found it fascinating about how so many fields that weren't previously intersecting have overlapped with artificial intelligence as being the point of intersection, mostly in the last few years. And in particular, neuroscience is one of those. Can you tell me how you personally progressed in going from one field to another, how AI entered the picture for you? 
Yeah, so when I took my PhD, it was in cognitive science and philosophy, and I was entering the job market thinking that that's what I would be doing in my first postdoc. But I noticed there was a number of jobs that specifically required people with a background in either machine learning or artificial intelligence, cognitive science on the one hand, computer science on the one hand, and then on the other hand, people who had experience of public policy or political philosophy, political theory, law, jurisprudence. And it struck me that this is not a Venn diagram that many people are going to be able to come up against and satisfactorily meet. But my background was in both of these areas. So I thought, well, I'll put an application in and I got the postdoc. And that's how I've been in this field ever since 2017, when I submitted my doctorate. What do you think the people who have come to this through a technical background, computer science, engineering, and are now driving the field of artificial intelligence, what sort of blind spots do you think they have that are informed by cognitive science and philosophy? I think it's the same issue that was identified by C.P. Snow many decades ago when he talked about the two cultures. I still find people that are largely more, should I call them numerate, as opposed to literate, looking down on people that do humanities and people that do humanities who are more literate as opposed to numerate, to some extent looking down on people that just do hard sciences as people that really don't know anything about culture, don't understand all the subtleties and complexities of life. And I think I think this continues so that people that go into, I could call it a hard science field, or at least at any rate, any kind of natural science, tend to think that the ethical dimension of life, the moral dimension, is really all the soft stuff. So there's a sense I get the feeling that some people think, well, I don't really need to learn that. That's not something you learn in a, in a course. That's just something you pick up as you go in life. That's easy stuff. That's just stuff you get by coping with whatever life throws at you. And the danger is of getting people that are very bright and very capable, highly intelligent people that go into these natural sciences who end up being funneled in some branch of computer science, maybe electrical engineering. They end up working on building these models without really thinking about the implications of what they're doing. To them, it's a technical challenge. To them, it's, it's like a Sudoku puzzle. They don't really get any satisfaction from thinking about the ethics of the Sudoku puzzle. They just want to solve the problem. So what can these people learn from moral philosophy, the humanities more generally, is an appreciation for just how complex the moral universe is. So much so that very acute and highly perceptive and insightful mathematical minds when they weren't doing pure mathematics or natural science, would turn their minds to matters of ethics and find it puzzling and almost just as much of a Sudoku puzzle. I mean, I think where moral philosophy meets the natural sciences is in areas like decision theory, social choice theory, public choice theory, game theory, where you really are modelling moral conundrums and political conundrums in very precise and rigorous ways. So I think... If these very intelligent, very capable STEM-type personalities were made to sit through a rigorous course in moral and political theory and game theory, social choice theory, PPE, broadly speaking, I think they would be less likely to dismiss all that soft stuff 
they could see that it actually this is challenging and this can exercise my own you know, logical brain in ways that will excite me. And then they can learn to take the moral philosophy more seriously and think through the repercussions of what they're doing. Mm. Think all the scenarios that might come. If this system that I'm now developing and I've approached as a Sudoku puzzle were actually let out in the wild, how many ways could this thing go wrong? And this really speaking to the culture of Silicon Valley and the drivers that are in it, it goes back to the early imperative of move fast and break stuff, which was the way to get ahead or to survive in the turn of the century. And they ended up breaking the social compact. And now we've got hearings where people are going, oops, we broke democracy as a result of moving fast in technology. And as you point out, they weren't thinking about that. No. To shift gears for a bit, we're at this watershed moment in history where it's BC, before COVID and AD, after disease. I, I don't know. And so you have an epilogue, you're on that cusp there about the pandemic where you got to acknowledge that now that some more time has passed and in COVID eras, six months is more time. Since this is a political book, what sort of connections have you seen with AI emerge as we get further into this pandemic? Connections between the times that we're in. Things have progressed. I mean, for example, we're now seeing vaccine mandates to an extent that I wouldn't have predicted a year ago, but now those are widespread causing problems and obviously with privacy implications. And so that since you have an epilogue about the impact of COVID on the situation or how it's changed your thinking, now that you've had more time and the situation has developed more, what would you add to that? It's underscored the sense that I have that data are perceived to be the answer to everything, more and more and more information. So in managing the pandemic, in plotting or charting its ebb and flow, it's all about crunching as much information from as many places as possible. So people have seen just how powerful that approach is in real time. They've seen not just modelling what's going on and modelling future scenarios, but they've also seen breakthroughs in vaccine development, which in no small part relied on data and machine learning. So from one point of view, the pandemic has highlighted what was already obvious, which is that we're in the information age and everything is coming down to data and extracting as much data as possible. That has other consequences. For example, we might call them epistemological consequences. I mean, just as a short side note, once upon a time, you might have found a scientist or a philosopher of science avow very firmly that the goal is to understand a phenomenon, is to theorize about it, to understand its underlying properties. The thought that the way you solve a scientific problem is just by collecting as much data about it as possible and putting it into some device and then seeing what happens, that would have been foreign to them. The goal is not to come up with instances, it's to come up with theories and then to see whether those theories are corroborated. But actually, in this age of information, one way of proceeding scientifically is precisely to do that, to collect as much data as possible and then just to let the data speak on something like its own terms. And sometimes the things that we want to find out are not susceptible to human-level thinking, like some mathematical proofs have only emerged from computers generating thousands of pages that were beyond human 
comprehension. And the only way to even trust the result was to write another computer program to check it. Yeah. So there's a sense in which then, again, continuing on with this epistemological point, there's a sense in which science has become, in some areas, more like engineering and less like traditional science. So going back to the conversation about the activist goal of this book, let's talk about education, not as an application of AI, but as educating people about artificial intelligence. How would you like education to shift to do the work that your book is starting? Oh, that's a big question. How would education in the schools, you mean, be changed? I don't think I've ever thought about that. Great, we get a scoop. I mean, sometimes you hear people talking about making our students future-proof in the sense that they need to have coding knowledge, they need to have technical STEM knowledge to be able to manage the jobs of the future. And I wonder whether that's the right way of thinking about it, you know, bringing more coding and less of other subjects and prioritizing coding. I think probably what's a better way of thinking about it is in the same way that we take reading, writing and arithmetic to be just foundational, we should take reading, writing, arithmetic and coding to be foundational. And therefore, think of it as a non-negotiable that doesn't crowd out other subjects that students could be learning, but that's just right there from the start. So students are accustomed to dealing with technology from as early as possible. Mm. And it's just part of the equipment. We're already on that road, but that's going to turn out more of the coders that will move fast and break society. What should we be teaching them to emphasize safety? Oh, I see. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think teaching ethics in the schools is very important. I know that in speaking with it from the point of view of a country with which I have some familiarity, ethics is not a part of the curriculum in Australia. And there are moves to make it part of the curriculum. And I think this is highly advisable. A secular curriculum of ethical instruction that introduces students to the problems that Aristotle and Plato thought about two and a half thousand years ago, getting students to think critically about moral conundrums. I mean, obviously, they come up against these scenarios in their literature, in their readings of literature. So it's already there. The Shakespeare's plays are full to the brim with conflicts of value. But I think having instruction in ethical thinking, in how to systematically approach an ethical problem, I think was probably very valuable. And little bit of decision theory might not also go astray in the higher school years. That's how I would think of making students aware of just how important it is to consider the consequences of their actions more broadly, rather than just thinking narrowly in terms of what's in it for me. So the very bright people, sort of go back to a point we were making before, the very bright people who first invested in Facebook were perceptive enough and therefore intelligent enough to see that that model of monetizing information for advertising was going to pay off. They saw that. And so they invested in Facebook and they made a lot of money doing so, but they didn't spare any thought about what might come. What's the moral hazard in what we're doing? Now, we don't want to come off as so naive as to think that if only they had had some decision theory, they might not have made that same error, but everything helps. And getting students to think not just in terms of how things affect me, but how they affect my environment and everyone in mine, that's what I think is missing. But I also wouldn't think 
that all of this can be chalked up to the school curriculum. These are much larger questions about cultural values, the extent to which neoliberalism has seeped into the recesses of life everywhere. And it kind of made us infatuated with the idea of buying property and investing in property and making money. That's a much broader cultural set of issues. Yes, and that's one of the challenges with this kind of activism is identifying just how many levers you need to pull because it's never just one. So it's not just education. It's not just government regulation or market incentives. It's those and many other things as well, which is what makes it interesting but so challenging. If you were given time to approach and speak to an educational body and they said, what would you like to change in our curriculum to afford your agenda here, help us turn out students that are better inoculated against this? Do you have any ideas? The message has to be gotten out that your actions affect not just you, but other people. Somehow or another, that message has to be drummed into our youngest people's heads. Mm. So because the temptation will always be to think about how am I to advance, which is fair enough because as organisms, our primary responsibility is to keep our own organism functioning. So it's natural that we will have more thoughts preoccupied with our own survival, mm. but our own survival is intimately linked with the survival of others. That message somehow has to be drenched in the curriculum. It doesn't have to be a specific subject. It's more like an ethos that needs to be instilled. And perhaps it should be experiential. I mean, I was a product of the British educational system where your performance was measured by how you did on examinations. And it was just you. There was no component of how do you do in a group? How might your actions affect someone else? No, you were specifically graded on how you did only by yourself with no interaction, which would have been cheating. And now my daughters go to a Montessori school where it's all about teamwork. And so they grow up with a much more educated experience of working in teams, which I wish I had had because, of course, don't do anything in engineering without working on a team. And the first time you get on one, you are called upon to exercise all kinds of skills that I didn't have in my school, either explicitly taught or really explored highly in an experiential way, and not unless you're counting team sports. And so perhaps that's the direction to approach this from. Well, thank you. How should people who are interested by this conversation and what you're doing follow more of your work? And what might you be releasing in the future in terms of other books or other things for them to consume? Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter. It's just my name. And I often tweet AI-related things and cognitive science and philosophy-related things. So if that's your fancy, you can follow me on Twitter. In terms of forthcoming work, I am engaged in discussions with an agent at the moment about another book that would address similar sorts of issues, but perhaps taking a specific angle. I haven't yet settled on what that will be. I noticed that with every passing month, there's now a new book on AI and on big tech and on politics and regulation. So it's soon becoming quite crowded. So I'm not sure whether I will pursue this particular project with my agent, but if anybody has ideas, if anybody actually 
has ideas for what sort of book they would like to see in this area, I would be very happy to hear from you. Great. All right, John Zarelli, thank you very much for coming on AI and You. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And that's the end of the interview. I liked how we got into how the educational system should change to teach what's most relevant and important in AI. If there are educators listening to this who want to comment or question that, have at it, please. I focus a lot on education because I think we're at the stage where the most useful thing we can do to secure a promising future with AI is educate people, starting at a really young age. And I love talking with schools. And right on after that, in the technology and issues of AI, especially ethics. You can find a link to John's book, A Citizen's Guide to Artificial Intelligence, in the show notes and transcript. In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI, Microsoft and NVIDIA have built a massive language processor with the irresistible name of the Megatron Turing Natural Language Generation Model. I mean, how could I not tell you about something called the Megatron when it's actually serious work? It's a transformer, we've talked about those on the show before, with 105 layers and 530 billion parameters. That's three times what GPT-3 is packing. Unfortunately, it's not going to be available for commercial use anytime soon. It was trained on a data set over 800 gigabytes in size known as The Pile, love that title, gathered from Wikipedia and other internet sources. The downside in getting your education from the internet is that a lot of the data isn't exactly clean. I mean that in several senses. The researchers said in their blog post that, quote, our observations are that the model picks up stereotypes and biases from the data on which it is trained, end quote. And Microsoft would know about that particularly well because of their experiment with the Tay chatbot, which became foul-mouthed and racist within 16 hours of deployment. That's what happens when you train it on Twitter. I guess my big question about these models is that we're building bigger and bigger ones that suck down more and more electricity, but we seem to be getting diminishing returns on the intelligence. Like, doubling the number of parameters doesn't seem to double the size of the context that they can work with. I could be wrong. Megatron is being used in natural language understanding and, quote, demonstrates unmatched accuracy in tasks such as common sense reasoning, end quote. When you hear about AIs and common sense, you do have to realize that it's a narrow interpretation of common sense that's being applied. And so far, it means whatever common sense can be gleaned or mimicked by pattern compilation on the input text corpus. So to make up an example, if someone somewhere has said that putting out an oil fire with water is a bad idea, a model like this could probably give the right answer if you asked it whether you could put out a grease fire with milk, but only because it had seen close enough answers before. On the other hand, that's how a lot of humans exercise common sense, right? It's just that we can do it on a much larger scale. We've crossed 40,000 downloads now. In fact, it will probably be 50,000 by the time this episode airs. I'm reasonably sure at this point they're not all my mother. Thank you. And if you think about other people you know, I'll bet some of them would like this show too, but they probably don't know about it. So do the show a favor and tell them about it. Give us a five-star rating and more people will come to the party and we'll be able to do more cool stuff. Like, what's coming next week? We will have a special end-of-year episode all about predictions for AI for 2022. 
And you won't have to listen to just me, but this time I will be joined by a panel of experts in many fields, some of whom you've heard before on the show and some you haven't. This might be a good time to revisit my predictions for 2021, as I put in the December 28th, 2020 show. Let's see how I did. Number one, no self-driving vehicle will be certified SAE Autonomy Level 5 for use on public roads in 2021. Check. The best we have is Level 4 in a very few places. I also said that disillusionment with lack of self-driving car progress would become widespread, but it has not although you can see that Tesla owners are starting to get more impatient. So I give myself half a point on that one. Two, there will be some deployment of autonomous vehicles in narrow applications at lower autonomy levels. Yes, we're seeing companies like Waymo and AutoX deploying level four taxis in places like Phoenix and Shenzhen. However, I also said that we would see platoons of self-driving trucks on the interstates, and we haven't, so I still only get half a point. But given the supply chain crisis and the acute shortage of truck drivers, the pressure on autonomous truck development companies to deliver must be enormous right now. So maybe not long? Three, deployment of narrow AI will explode. Unquestionably, this has happened, if only based on my inbox exploding with news of such applications. I don't know if anyone's quantified that. One point. Four, we'll see breakthroughs in medicine due to AI. While we've seen some successes from AlphaFold, I don't think this has nearly been what I had expected, let alone hoped for, so I get at most half a point. Five, online collaboration tools will develop considerably. Again, not nearly as much as they should have. I speak as a remote worker, and that's really annoying given that we've had an entire year of people continuing to work remotely for the most part. Maybe Facebook Announcing the metaverse as a place to experience through VR headsets would count if they were actually targeting workers instead of gamers. I'm not giving myself anything for that. But if you know of some news that you think qualifies, send it in. Six, increased deployment of AI in education. Again, I'm very aware of considerable potential and prototyping of AI in education in everything from chatbots to improve recruitment, to knowledge bases pinpointing gaps in institutional research, but I've not seen the widespread adoption that they really should have been this year, considering how much universities with physical buildings have been hurting. No points. That was wishful thinking speaking. Seven, we'll see major deployments in robotic process automation and customer service. Yes, robot adoption has taken off, and so has the use of AI in customer service chatbots, not always done well, mind you, but it's there. One point. Eight. I said we'll hear artificial general intelligence talked about as a serious research technology rather than blue sky. In some circles, this is true. Bear in mind the prediction is talking about communication about AGI as opposed to its development. DeepMind unashamedly bills themselves as an AGI company, even though they don't have that yet. In fact, I've heard other companies start to use AGI in their marketing speak. And while I think there's a risk of hyping it to a point where some disillusionment sets in, we're not there yet. One point. Nine, we'll see a conflict where AI is part of cyber warfare. Computer security intrusions have escalated and ransomware has matured its business model, I use the term advisedly, a lot over the last year. So while we haven't had a conflict in the traditional sense, I'll still say that it's worth half a point. And finally, 
10, I said, we'll see more relabeling of AI applications as something else. I was anticipating that as an extension of the adage that once we learn how to do something, we stop calling it AI. I was dead wrong on this. Everyone still wants to attach the AI label to as much as possible, and none of the bloom is off that rose. That's a total of 5 out of 10. We've got to do better this year. So tune in to next week's panel and find out what our collective wisdom says for 2022. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>